welcome to the Sociology and Animals podcast series. In this program, we speak with folks specializing in the sociological study of animals and society in an effort to document and explore how research in our field is applied in the real lives and careers of sociologists. My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I'm currently chair of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association. But this podcast is coming to you from Canterbury, England, where I have been living since 2019 after accepting a position as lecturer in sociology with the University of Kent. Our field is growing, but it is still small and doesn't always elicit support from colleagues, prospective employers, editors, reviewers, grant funders, and so on. My aim with this podcast is to challenge this institutional discrimination and provide some insider insights into making a career out of animal studies. Not that long ago, the idea of a career in animal studies would have seemed impossible, if not outlandish. It is my aim that this podcast will serve as a sort of informal virtual mentorship for folks interested in learning more about the sociological pursuit of animal studies. So without further ado, let's meet today's guest. All right, then. Good morning, Roger. Welcome, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? I'm alive and well. Oh, good. (laughs) That's that's good. Speaking of alive and well, how, how's the cat? I, I heard about the cat and operation and cancer of, in an uh, earlier one. Yeah, so I had two two cats, one of which I had for 16 years, and he died last month, and it was one of the worst experiences of my whole life, and I've dealt with a lot of death in my day. Mm. Um, but then the other cat, the this, they both got, basically, they both got terminal diagnoses on the same in the same week, so it was extremely... I, I didn't get off the sofa for about two weeks. It was just so. And then with one of them, he died from, we think it was, he's always had IBS, some kind of bowel problem. But towards the end, he just basically starved to death. And it was, he wasn't able to control his bowels. He couldn't eat. I had to hold him up in the litter box. He lost all muscle strengths. It was just like constant caretaking. And then my other cat, yeah, she had surgery for breast cancer basically and she's finally recovering i've got her little because she had to wear this little for anyone who, who follows me on instagram you'll see she had a little suit that she had to wear so that's finally come off and then she's feeling okay now but the blood work has come back she she's definitely got cancer so the typically cats with that kind of cancer don't live more than about six months mm. yeah i was uh, quite i was quite moved by uh, what, what you said in the sense that you were t- talking about how you know, the idea of mourning the death of an other animal can be quite difficult for a, in a mm-hmm. vegan perspective in a world that doesn't quite understand that. You know, I mean, I think that's true, isn't it? Yeah. And if it was not for my vegan community, I think it would be all the worse because and like my coworkers, I, f- I feel like I'm lucky this happened during lockdown because I didn't have to negotiate like work duties or whatever else. I just worked when I could. That was the other thing. I had no friends or family to come and like be with me just for even support. You know, I was just dealing with this on my own. I had to go take them to be euthanized on my own. Oh, just okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's particularly <laughs> horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's the first time I've I've had pets. <laughs> I hate that word pets, but you know what I mean. Um, I've had animals in my life die lots. Everyone has, but this one was really bad because I'd had him for so long. It was on my own and. All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, goodbye. <laughs> All right, well, then, how about, let's back it up a little bit. Tell us who you are, what you do, and then we can talk about what you find interesting about sociology, because this is not the Corey Wren Show. Um, so, Roger, what is it that you do that makes you such a wonderful, amazing star shining bright in the sky? 
Yeah, well, not so sure about that. I, I noticed that question has kind of floored a lot, a lot of your previous guests. And it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> a difficult one to deal with, really. But, um, well, I've been what I call an ethical vegan since 1979. So I, I got involved um, fairly early, I suppose. I, I tried. I had a false start in 77. But I got straight into the kind of activist side of things. And then, um, the you know, the kind of acad academic kind of things kind of came later in, in a sense but in terms of like research interests you know obviously I was interested in social movement theory and um, I was particularly interested in this kind of idea that um, that when you get into involved in a social movement it's kind of like um, identity involving but also identitive, identity transforming. I, I like the kind of transformative aspect of, mm. of social movements in the sense that you know people should be radicalized by get, by getting involved in, in a way. But the ir irony about that is that um, I was learning about social movement theory and, t and teaching it as well from about 1999. And um, when I wrote my MA, I ended up calling it a sociology of compromise because I learned that the animal rights movement is not quite as radical as it thinks it is. You know, so we're into kind of new social movements and, um, you know, these, these kind of ideas about non-revolutionary and then you got the things that you've covered in your work, which is the idea of professionalization, um, moderation of, of aims and aspirations, you know, and, uh, you know, just getting involved with careerism, getting the offices and, you know, you know, you, your priorities kind of change. And I, I, I found that in my own experience of the movement and it was reflected in social movement theory, which was which was quite interesting for me. In, in terms of my PhD, I turned to uh, social constructionism interested in beliefs and attitudes and in in culture in general language claims making um, I suppose what uh, Tom Reagan and people like Richard Ryder would call the battle of ideas and you know how that plays out so I, I looked a lot at um, the, the issue of um, movements and counter movements you know I was really interested in that uh, you know the so-called movement counter movement dialectic so I was really interested in the study of the kind of processes and structures that give meaning to people you know that 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 was um, a big thing for me and then I did some kind of quirky things I suppose in the sense that um, along with my PhD supervisor this is in the early uh, 2000s really and also a criminologist called Piers Burned um, of which more later I think um, I looked at this phenomenon called horse maiming um, which kind of kind of flares up every now and again when people kind of attack horses um, in the field and because of the criminological kind of um, focus of that, in the end, it started to look at things like social class and policing as much as the topic of why people would would go around um, maiming horses in the middle of, the, of fields in the middle of the night, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then finally, I suppose I did some research um, on online discourse. This is in the very early days of the Internet. There was an old forum called um, it was called Animal Rights Debate. And that's when I kind of uh, looked at uh, how the counter movements are quite organized. You know, there's, there's a lot of kind of organized claims making, you know, well, this is this is what you say to the animal rights folks kind of thing. And there, there was a big claim at the time, for example, especially in the United States, that there's lots of medical reasons why people can't be vegan. And, and, and I found that um, these counter movement arguments filtered into what people were saying on forums, you know, quite a lot. So I, I did a look at that, you know, so yeah, so that's kind of like research interest. Uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> I was, I've been quite amused by the fact that um, some of the people that you talked 
talked with already have talked about unconventional uh, moves into academia in general and animal studies in particular. And I, I suppose I might be able to trump those a little bit. I'm not quite sure if I can say trump to, to you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm taking uh, the word back, I'm reclaiming it. <laughs> but um, I mean, I, I actually went into academia straight from prison, you know, so I was an animal rights prisoner. Yeah, you were. Um, yeah, so, so <laughs> it, that, that, that was an unusual entry. In fact, they, I was told later that they had to have a, a kind of high-ranking meeting to find out whether this dangerous person uh, you know, was going to be a threat to the university, you know, to the institution. And, but they did, they did kind of let me in, and that, and that was the start of it. You know, I, I wasn't a very educated person when I went to prison. And so I thought, well, rather than, you know, making mailbags, which I wasn't very good at, um, I ought to get myself an education. So that's, that's what started it, really. Ha! Joke's on them. Now look mm. at <laughs> use it. To, use it against them. Uh, actually, that reminds me, I was doing... I do a lot of content analysis in my own research, and I was—I came across an article about you. I don't about know, me? Yeah, I don't know what school you were at, but it was someone had written it to the newspaper, and look, we have this ex-prisoner teaching our students, and it was like this big expose, and I was like, it's no secret, everybody knows. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think that was the Irish um, Daily Mirror or something. I um, guess years now, I, I was yeah. like, <laughs> I think I think the headline was terrorist in the classroom, if I remember oh, right. Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calm so, down. Yeah, it was a nice balanced piece. It was. <laughs> you know what? Like this, this may jump a little bit because at the end of the interview, I like to ask people what advice they have for folks. But I want to kind of hint on that because I know that there's a lot of imposter syndrome among students and early scholars. I know that there's a lot of anxiety. I mean, this is. This is actually documented. Graduate students have higher levels of depression and anxiety and have problems with like social inclusion because of the nature of what we do mm. does force us to be overworked and to isolate quite a lot. And maybe this this is this can be a lesson for folks listening. Like Roger has really come from well, how much lower can you go? And you are able to come out of that and to make a career and, and focus on on animal rights. And I think that's really a success story that folk, people should kind of focus on. Because, you know, we also have people coming from, like, poverty, like, lower class situations. I grew up poor as shit. <laughs> I made it here. You were in prison. You made it here. So I just know, I know there's a lot of anxiety in graduate school and for people who are starting this career. And academia does that to people. It creates anxieties. But maybe look on the brighter side and look, and look to folks who've been able to persevere. It is possible. Hmm. Always look on the bright side of life. But also, I think, I think the fact that if you've got a, a kind of burning interest and you can kind of express that within academia, that really helps. I mean, I remember um, when I was doing my PhD, other, other PhD candidates were kind of, um, they were sick and tired of the subject that they were studying by wow. then. You know, they were really tired of it um, because they were kind of almost like, um, not pushed into it, but they were kind of encouraged to go one way rather than another, and they didn't particularly want to do that. And so it ended up being like a chore, where it, it wasn't for me because I was almost like researching well, with my MA, I was researching my own movement, so to speak. Yeah. And and with the PhD, I was looking at the support pillars of cultural speciesism, which was just a genuine interest of mine because I thought, well, I'd be able to translate that. You know, I saw myself as an activist scholar, yeah. which, I, which I suppose, I don't know, you tell me, I suppose that's a bit of a, a weird idea nowadays when everything's based on careers and stuff, maybe, I don't know. You know, but um, 
I mean, I, I certainly saw myself as that, and I was surrounded by people who saw themselves a little bit like that. And we kind of thought that um, we, we're, we're part of movements, and we, so we can translate the movement to academia, and we can translate some themes from academia to the movement. And so, you know, I always felt that um, sociology would be a great kind of benefit to the animal movement. And then I found that actually most people are more interested in psychology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that actually touches on a lot of really important points there where I've talked about activist scholar kind of career paths a little bit in this podcast, but one of the things that is unique to what we do is that we are infinitely motivated. Yeah, there's so this huge wealth of information, all this knowledge, all this research, all this evidence that the social movement that we're involved with isn't tapped into. And one of the things I think we really need to highlight to folks listening is that Social movements in academia are kind of hand in hand, especially in our movement. Most of our biggest like leaders have been academics like Peter Singer, like Tom Reagan and others. Mm. Well, you know, but also kind of on the ground kind of concerns. I mean, like I, I thought that um, I mean, I've got a couple of talks based on on socialization processes and stuff. And I thought that people would be really interested in that because it answers those questions about, you know, how can you love one and eat another? It answers those kind of questions, and you know what? Why is um, why is the animal movement so kind of easy to slide back into animal welfareism? Well, that, well, that's because that's the dominant ideology of society, and that's what we're all taught as children, you know. And I thought that um, those kind of structural factors would be of interest to people, but yeah. they they tend to, to to play second fiddle, as it were, to psychology, which has been a bit of a disappointment to me, really. Do we want to delve into why? <laughs> Actually, I think it'd be worth like very quickly explaining why psychology, <clears throat> and this is no offense to my dear friend, Christoph Daunt, who's already been on the show. That's mm -hmm. what he does. But <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that in our, in our social movement field, there are really very few sociologists doing what we do. There's a handful of us, really, who do animal rights stuff, right? We have animal studies folks, but only a handful of people who specifically focus on the animal rights movement, especially a critical approach to it. Yeah. And yeah. then you're right, like the social psychology has expanded quite a bit. I think we've talked about that in another podcast, but I think what it is, is that's what's easily sellable to these nonprofits once they become professionalized and they can say, oh, look, this social psychology study says that this is something that might work for the stuff that we're already doing. Do you think that that might be some, or do you, what else do you think is going on? Yeah, I think it's something to that, but also, I mean, more controversially, perhaps, I think it's something to do with, you know, neoliberalism and me, me, me generation and this kind of stuff, you know, Thatcher's children and all that. Um, so I, I think there is there is definitely this, this more um, emphasis on, on individualism. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so I think that, I mean, like, people don't seem to, I, I mean, the point I always tend to make is that um, sometimes, you know, like a generation ago, my father's generation, if, if you asked him what he was, he might well have said working class. He would have answered in that in those terms, because I don't think anybody would do that anymore. So people don't tend to think in those kind of collective terms as uh, much. I don't think. So I think that psychology, when it's all kind of you know my feelings, what what do I feel, and what did it have uh, the effect on me and everything. I think I think that kind of talks to that kind of generation. And I know that's um, potentially kind of I don't know elitist thing or or pejorative you know, thing to I'm, say maybe but um that's that's classic sociology right there <laughs> yeah. fighting back that fight between individual thinking and like societal level thinking and mm. 
Well, I mean, that, that's why I was, I was very grateful when, when I learned from David Nybert um, about, um, you know, his analysis of um, cultural speciesism mm -hmm. and taught, taught us that um, speciesism is not kind of a prejudice which right. is held by individuals. It's, it's deeply embedded, you know, in the fabric of society. It's institutionalized. You know, once you understand that, it becomes a lot, a lot easier to, to understand why people, you walk out your door and you see people doing incredibly speciesist things. Uh, well, it's, it's easier to understand that. It's not just because they're horrible or anything or they're evil. It's mm -hmm. because they're, they're deeply socialized into a deeply speciesist society. Yeah, and then, but then you come against the, the people that say, yeah, but I changed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I it's a big mistake, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, vote with your dollar, and we can mm. each individual making choices. And see, this is getting into some all right deep sociological debates. <laughs> Maybe I should uh, rein it back in because uh, we're definitely getting into some cool stuff. How about um, so we've talked about David Nybert, we've talked about some the protest literature. What about is there anything else in sociology? Like, is there a major concept or theory? Because you've listed quite a few. Is there any one in particular when it comes to sociology? that you think, wow, this is really what we have to offer? Well, for me, it was critical theory, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it, it you know, the, the focus, you know, the Frankfurt School, the focus on culture, the, the, the focus on kind of understanding people, um, you know, in, in that sense. And that, of course, feeds into other issues. I mean, like um, when I was at university, symbolic interactionism was, was, was quite... Uh, you know, quite an interesting kind of thing in the sense that you can kind of slide from the from the macro to the micro, micro and this kind of stuff. And then social phenomenology w w was big in my university. And in fact, there was even a strong um, strand of uh, ethnomethodology. And so it, it, it kind of looked at, um, you know, how people construct the world in terms of, of meanings and stuff. Uh, and I found that kind of fascinating. And, and I immediately saw, well, you know, th this this is one of the reasons why people just kind of produce the kind of stuff that they produce on the street well you know you know protein you know all that kind of they've, they've almost like it's a bit like indexicality from ethnomethodology they, they've got almost like a, a list of um yeah. concepts in there in thing and they just they hear a trigger word and they come out they come out with oh you know canine teeth and all that kind of and it's all it's all built in there that it's almost like they're socialized into a package of, of values you know and they just reproduce it it's really interesting you're the first one to touch on that. That's like a branch of sociology that I hated in, <laughs> in graduate school, and I just never went back to it. But yeah, now that you put it that way, there's so much. Mm. Yeah. Did did you, did you ever hear of um, one called uh, zemiology, which is zemiology. the yeah, it's a study of harm. And now I think it's kind of cool. Uh, it didn't really take off, really, to be honest. But I, I characterized my PhD as a work of uh, of sociological zemiology. So Zem, it's, is it Zemiology? Yeah, Zemi, yeah, uh, Z-E-M-I-ology, yeah. And um, it, so I think it's called social uh, harm now, but okay. um, certainly, you know, the, the idea of um, looking at um, harm, the structures that create it, the values that create, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I know, I know you, you're going to ask me about um, the people who are, who are um, you know, kind of influential and obviously... Yeah, yeah, David Nybert, we yeah. we we mentioned. Um, Cyril Coe's philosophical work, I think, is quite interesting. Um, although I do notice, I think think she's a big Peter Singer fan, so I suppose you can't have everything. But um, you know, there's a yeah. So that that's pretty interesting. 
And I also wanted to, to mention uh, Piers Byrne. And um, I don't know if that's a name new to you, but he's a professor of sociology at the university. He's a doesn't he? Sorry? Is he a criminologist? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, he kind of developed green criminology and also um, kind of credited with developing non-speciesist criminology. And um, in fact, I, I've, I've got his book. Uh, I know we're on audio, but I'm, wa I'm waving this book at the camera for, for just for you. And um, it's called uh, Confronting Animal Abuse. And he starts off in Ireland, funny enough. With yeah, the... that's how I know him. I'm working on my Irish book now. And he, yeah. he contacted me and I was very embarrassed that I didn't know about that chapter he did on like the very first animal rights law was basically a colonial law. Yeah, plowing by the tail. Mm. Mm, that's right, yeah. It was a very fascinating chapter. Oh, and then, uh, what he does is what I love to do. I love that historical, like going back into the, the history and, and looking for stuff that people back, people who came before us were not thinking about animals may have overlooked. And there's just so much, a wealth of stuff we can go back and revisit. <clears throat> so he's on it. Mm, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, did a, I did a conference with, with him in, in um, Cardiff uh, a few years ago, and it was all really interesting stuff, you know. Who else? Anybody else? Silco, David Nybert, Piers Byrne. Um, yeah, uh, well, uh, there's Cliff uh, Flynn, um, uh, I know. Uh, really interesting because uh, when you hear Cliff talk, I've got a podcast with him and it sounds like a kind of North American cowboy kind of accent, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, his, his work is, uh, is quite good. And, you know, along, along the way, you've, you've obviously had people like um, Carl Adams, um, second wave feminism. Uh, I know that's a bit of a dodgy term nowadays. Um, but and obviously, I'd, I'd always go back to Tom Reagan, of course, myself, wouldn't I? But, um, you know, so all of those people, I suppose that's a kind of potpourri of, of my kind of influences, I suppose. Yeah. So I, I just pushed you because I know that you, one of the things that <clears throat> is unique to you is whenever you do your social media stuff, you really work hard to remind people that there's all this wealth of information that anyone can go and access. So you're really kind of a cheerleader to the field, I would say. Yeah, well, you mean in terms of the archives? Yeah, well, I guess we're into a lot of bother in the movement at the, mo at the moment because, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the movement don't seem to be that interested in in the history of it, which, which I find, just as a sociologist, a bit weird, really. It's kind of like, a, you know, how can you even do that? You know, join a movement and not care about what it stands for. It's just yeah. a bit bit bizarre to me but there you go but even going back because i've done a lot of research in the first wave of the movement <clears throat> that it, i did a lot of in research in it because i didn't know about it and it was very interesting to me and it's fascinating it's humbling but fascinating to read back and stuff written in the 1800s and you're like gosh these people were making the same arguments they were fighting the same fight and we really have forgotten all the hard work that they've done and i think we also have the stereotype we look back all oh, the 1800s people were all just killing animals for fun back then. It's like, no, there were actually some really forward thinking people. And there was some really close calls with like socialist history over time where we could have gone a completely different direction historically. So it's fascinating to look back at that. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's interesting that you mentioned that because the, the early history of animal welfareism was very kind of deeply kind of embedded with kind of socialist um, issues as well. Mm. Um, which is a big issue at the moment in in the movement, you know, kind of are, are we a, a left leaning movement or or are we not, you know, that kind of issue, you know. So, well, let's then let's bring it back to the to the future tense then or the present tense. Mm. And what are some current things happening in sociology that you think are interesting? 
Well, it's interesting that I mean, I, I kind of feel in, in that particular instance, I'm a little bit out of the kind of loop in a way. Um, I mean, you, you even mentioned you even mentioned me in the in a previous one saying that I've kind of concentrated on activism rather than academia, which is which is kind of true. I, I've always felt a little bit kind of peripheral in terms of, of, of academia, to be honest, because I, I deliberately wanted to um, to kind of try to mold my career in a way that I could still be an activist. Mm. And uh, so that meant that I was kind of quite peripheral. I didn't didn't really get that involved. In fact, when I was at the University of Wales in Bangor, I was kind of working for about four different departments, but I was on the on the periphery of all of them. You know, so I was you know I was doing the kind of uh, evening classes and mature students and that, which which I actually found really really useful. But I was able to bring the animal stuff into all of it. You know, the um, when we talk about critical theory. Uh, you know, even social theory, you could you could bring it in um, social movement theory, obviously, because I used to use animal rights or, uh, you know, the animal issue as 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 a case study within that. And so you would develop a, uh, you know, social movement theory, uh, you would explain it and then see how the animal movement fits into it and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, use it as a case uh, in that. So um, may maybe you should tell me about the recent developments and then, then I'll tell you if I find them interesting about that. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do because almost every single person has said, "Oh, the the decolonial stuff, the intersectional stuff," and that's right where you fit in. So I know that you're interested in it. Yeah, yeah, I, I am interested in the pro-intersectional uh, materials certainly, and um, I'm also, you know, just on, on on a side note, I suppose I'm interested in the controversy that that's created too. Ah, there you go. Mm, because uh, you know, again, in my generation, I don't think it would have caused that that problem. And I, I have difficulty now by by telling people that, you know, if if the movement started, you know, uh, now with the same values as back then, it would be called pro-intersectional and people just don't don't either get that or don't want to get that or reject that. You know, I mean, you know, going back to your question, I suppose in the, the fact that animal studies is developing at all and hasn't folded up and it's now getting some recognition. And, and I know that you've talked about the problems the issues, you know, in, in this series. And, and I, th I think this series is great for that because you, you've kind of opened up um, an area of looking at, at, at the world, which I don't think many people have done. So it's, it's you know, it's a brilliant series in that sense. But I, I think the fact that we're still going is, is very gratifying, I think. So, you know, I suppose that, I suppose that's where I'd, I'd say on that, that um, I'm actually just glad that there are still people around doing it, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, you're right to say that it is, it's not folding up. Uh, the David, when I interviewed David Nybert, he made a comment about my own career path and he, full disclosure, he was a, he was a reference for me. He wrote letters for me. So he knew full well how difficult it was for me to find anyone to find a job in academia. It's difficult, but especially when you have, when someone looks at your CV and it's just animals, 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 you, you're up against it. And he had, he said in the interview that, you know, people looked at your gender stuff and your social movement stuff. It's, which is true, but really the reason I got hired at the University of Kent was kind of fortuitous. The person, I replaced somebody who had retired and he was focusing on environmental politics, but they knew full well about my animal stuff and they asked about it in my interview quite a lot. And it was not that they were turned off at all by it. They were fascinated by it because they knew this was cutting edge new sociology and especially in the UK where we're very much so research focused and they saw that as an opportunity. Here's someone who's ahead of the game these mm. issues are only going to become more important with climate change and with people caring about animals now in ways that they hadn't before. Veganism, veganism is way more popular in the UK, I would say, than it is even in the United States. 
So although, yeah, I mean, I did have to kind of bill myself as someone who could do feminist stuff and social movement stuff, environmental politics. The fact that I focus on animals in this particular case, and this is why I love my job so much, did not actually work against me. So there no. are increasingly well, going to be opportunities. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's really interesting you say that because that kind of echoes what, what happened to me back, you know, back in the early 90s now. And um, you see, the thing is, I kept... As I said, I came out of prison, and I ended. I, ended, I mean, I came out of prison on a, on a on a Friday night, and I was I was in university on on the, the next Monday. It was really kind of a weird kind of transition, as you can imagine. Ooh. Yeah, and so because I was two weeks I was two weeks late because they were kind of umming and ahhing about actually letting me out and stuff. But um, I landed in the University of Wales, and it was like radical sociology and critical criminology, uh-huh. and I I didn't realise that I was in such a kind of radical space and in fact i thought all sociology was like that yeah. you know and then it became a bit of a shock to me to find that actually it wasn't and that i'd i just kind of like been lucky you know i mean if i had gone into a you know a conservative kind of thing i would i wouldn't have fitted in at all but 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 they they didn't like take the mickey you know they they mm-hmm. were they were very open to to my stuff right right from the start but then again you know it's all about academic freedom and expression and that kind of stuff so I, I was I was lucky in that sense, and I suppose that that, that I suppose for people coming into it, there's going to be an element of luck, isn't there? If you get in the right institution, or you know, kind of just hook up with the right people and network with the right people, you know, that kind of stuff. I suppose. All right. Yeah. So, I guess before we close, is there any other? We've been kind of touching on it throughout the interview about what someone might do to get into mm. career. So, I, I, w- I was interested that uh, quite a lot of the um, the previous guests have talked about um, the importance and utility of conferences, you know, mm-hmm. whether, whether they're academic or non-academic. And I suppose, I suppose in recent years, I've done, I've done a lot of the, the kind of non-academic ones. And, and I think that is a, an immediate kind of way of uh, networking. But then again, presumably the internet should, should be that as well. Um, you know, the World Wide Web and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I think it's a question of, um, you know, discovering the field, reading up about it. Again, it's a little bit like, you know, knowing the history of the movement you join, you kind of know, you need to kind of learn about the field that you're interested in. <clears throat> and, and then just just by reading tends to give you um, a focus to your interest. And then it's a question of, of a little bit of luck then uh, of kind of meeting, meeting the right people and going to the right place. So I don't, I don't think there's, um, you know, I don't think you can write, write a guide for it. I think I think I think there is a little bit of uh, luck involved. And the other thing that you highlighted that I think is important, as you said, find your online community, because you and I have known of each other for many, many years. And this goes back to that social movement online community. And I think that that is one important space for people to explore is built. Maybe I think that this has a lot to do with where I am now is that I've been doing public sociology for a very long time. I've been blogging since I was in my mid 20s. And uh, this is one of the ways that you meet people, not just other academics, but people from all over. And this is really can be helpful for you along your career path. So maybe if you can't do conferences or you don't like conferences, they're too expensive or you're too introverted for it. Perhaps an alternative would be to really do that behind the screen stuff, would you say? Mm. Well, yeah, but also, I mean, we can we can do online conferencing now, which is yeah. um, quite an interesting one because you know, again, you can you don't have to have your camera on, you know, you just listen and stuff, and so you you don't even have, uh, you know, if you're a kind of shy person. I mean, I, I noticed you mentioned 
uh, about being quite quite shy at, at one point. Uh, going back to reading, I tell you what's very important. I think is that you know if anybody's in university, university libraries are absolutely wonderful places. But don't just go to the book section. Get, get down in whatever you call it, the stack or the archive or whatever, and start looking through the journals. Because mm. the journals are absolutely an amazing place because they'll bounce you around from one to the other. You know, l l I mean, I, when I was at university, we used to do a session called Mug a Book, which basically meant you don't you don't read academic books. You kind of mug them, you know. And so, you know, you get you, you see people get them down from the shelf. And the first thing they do is turn to the back and start looking through the index. Mm. You know, so, you, you know, you look through the index, you look through the bibliography and you look you look through the content thing. You know, you don't start reading it like a novel, but mm. you know that that's what happens with journals. You know, you can you can look at a journal article and then look at look at the references, and that'll bounce you around to all other places. And it's a, it's it's almost like being a detective. It's, it's it's a great thing to do. Can you tell us where we can find you? Yeah, well, my PhD is online. It, it's a blogger site. So it, uh, if you go uh, rogeryatesphd.blogspot.com. You'll, you'll find me there. And um, my MA is um, online uh, as well. That's part of my my website, which includes a blog. And that's called On Human Relations with Other Sentient Beings. So it's on human relations with other sentient beings dot weebly dot com. In fact, I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not so happy with the title of that any, anymore, but I changed it from On Human Non-Human Relations. I, th I, I thought it was a bit more PC to say sentient beings, but anyway. And then I've got ve uh, Vegan Information Project. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And finally, there's something called the Animal uh, Education Outreach uh, Group, which is animaleducationoutreach.weebly.com. So they're, they're most of the things that you can get me on. There you go. Folks can dive in. Well, thanks a lot, Roger. I appreciate you having this conversation with me. Yeah, and thank thank you for doing this series. It's a great it's a great idea. I'm re I'm really I mean it was a revelation when I came across it because it kind of really fills a, a gap. So well done for that. Yay! That's good to hear. Thanks for listening to Sociology and Animals. I hope you found it helpful and informative. If you want to learn more about the sociological study of society and animals, you can check out the website of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association or my own website at coreyleevren.com. You can also check out the International Association for Vegan Sociologists, and the website for that is vegansociology.com. Feedback and suggestions can be submitted to myself at coreyren at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y dot W-R-E-N-N at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to share the series with others. The music for this podcast was provided by Ode to Sleep, a band local to where I live, here in East Kent, England. Ode to Sleep explores various topics with their music, including human and animal rights, environmental issues, equality, and mental health. Their debut EP will be released in September 2020 through Is No I N Team Records. Their single featured here is called Captive Audience and is available now on all streaming platforms. Until next time, this is Dr. Corey Wren signing off. All the best.